Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, all right. Welcome, Solar Warrior, to another Thursday edition of Suncast. Thanks so much for tuning in and lending me your ears and your only non-renewable resource. And that is your time. I do value it wherever you are, whatever you're doing. You can be doing just about anything or listening to anyone. So thank you for tuning in here. Hey, if you're new to Suncast, thank you for taking time out of your schedule to check us out. I promise you're going to get a ton of value out of this episode. And thanks for giving us an opportunity to earn your attention. Today's entrepreneur is no stranger to distributed energy, high growth startups, and even the playful side of the corporate schlog that so many of us are familiar with. Greg Dixon has held executive marketing and sales roles in public companies in consulting, energy, petrochemical products, heck, even crayons. But nothing has captured and commanded his attention and focus like saving customers money on their energy bills. Well, today we're going to dig into how he's helped literally thousands of businesses do just that and how he's turning an entire industry on its head with smart tech and deep culture. After a decade of running one of the most successful public companies in demand response, Greg has just raised $25 million for his own startup called Voltus. And it's a veritable continuation of the work that he started back at Internoc. If you like what you're hearing here on Suncast, please be sure to subscribe to the show in Spotify, iTunes, wherever it is that you enjoy podcasts, as that's going to ensure not only that you don't miss the next episode we produce twice a week, as you know, but also it helps other people who are looking for content just like this. Of course, you can check out more than 310 other founder stories and startup advice on our website at mysuncast.com. And a special thanks to those intrepid warriors who have ventured over to our website and clicked on either the work with Nico button or the become a member button. Your curiosity is rewarded. I am also really enjoying those conversations and the ways that we interact as a community. I'm now accepting applications for a few coaching spots that I've opened up just for a few of you who are looking for help getting through the end of the year, planning 2021, getting on solid footing. If that's you and you'd like to have a chat, I'd encourage you to fill out the app on the website and let's have a call and see if there's a fit. For now, let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. All right, Solar Warriors, today we are going down the rabbit hole with an entrepreneur I've recently come to know and respect, and I'm really, really interested to hear more insight about the corner of clean tech and energy management that Greg Dixon and his team at Voltus help us understand and manage better. Uh, a hat tip as we get going here to one of Voltus's employees, a friend and a brother from another mother, Dr. David Rishbaum, for helping connect myself with Mr. Greg Dixon. Greg is the co 
founder of Voltus. We're going to go into how and why Voltus exists and the many different ways that Greg's career uh, twisted and turned on the way to it. But first, let me say welcome, Greg, to Suncast. Thanks, Nico. Good morning. Absolutely, man. Good morning. You are considered a world-renowned expert in commercial industrial energy management. And I know that uh, through your time at some of the previous companies prior to, to Voltus, you helped pioneer a lot of the innovations that we currently take for granted around intelligent energy. So we'll talk a lot about that, but you aren't exactly in what many of us think of as clean energy, not a solar company, not a, a renewable energy power company. So let's take this from a slightly different perspective. I do want to explore your background, but let me explore by way of trying to better understand Greg, the entrepreneur. Can you clearly identify from an early age who your heroes were growing up? And I'm wondering in that question, are you from a family of entrepreneurs, employees, scientists? Who were the big influences in your early life? Yeah, sure. I, I would say it's my parents. You know, my mom and my dad had a huge influence on me in countless ways. Positive, negative. They were human beings that are, you know, <laughs> as flawed as all of us. And, and I learned a lot. I learned a lot from everything they did, you know, good, bad, and ugly. I grew up in uh, the tiny town of Bethlehem in the heart of the White Mountains of Northern New Hampshire. My parents were Bostonians who spent weekends there with friends where they started the Bethlehem Ski Club. And, you know, they loved to ski and hike, fish and play in the mountains. And they decided that was a great place to, uh, to raise a family. So they, they bought a 150-acre non-operating farm on the Ammanusik River for something like $23,000, which they probably could barely afford at the time. And they moved permanently to the, the land of milk and honey and ice and snow. Did they have a re like an economic plan or were they already uh, at, a pl at a place where they could retire at that point? No, they had no economic plan whatsoever. You know, my, my dad was working at the Lynn River Works General Electric plant where Trident nuclear submarines and, and gas turbines were, were made. And as the story goes, he saw that a lot of people there were getting cancer and he kind of had a, a wild hair and an entrepreneur's free spirit. And he and my mom convinced themselves that it was time to, uh, to leave the city for country life. And so they moved to Bethlehem, New Hampshire uh, to just be as the city promotes as their slogan. <laughs> yeah. How did uh, living that in a, in a remote environment influence or affect as you reflect back on it, the way that you grew up or the way that you think about uh, the world and, and how you build your businesses? Well, it, it was extremely influential. You know, I, I grew up in the country on a dirt road on the outskirts of a tiny town surrounded by stunning natural beauty that, you know, I came to understand I really took for granted. We lived quite a bit off the land, you know, trout from the river and deer from the woods and our own chickens, a big garden an old apple orchard that was on the farm. And we played in the, the great outdoors. We were a ski family racing and training on weekends at Cannon Mountain and Franconia Notch. And my dad was an entrepreneur and an engineer. So we had all manner of crazy contraptions, including solar energy and river powered electricity and crazy inventions lying about. And it's actually part of the reason my mom uh, divorced my dad. Oh, wow. Uh, the shit never worked. <laughs> so, you know, that was a really formative experience for me, actually. And, and you know, by it, but you know, but by any measure, I I, I grew up poor, and I, I didn't realize that until I, you know, my parents got divorced. I went to 
middle school back in Boston and had to get in the free lunch line every day. And, and so, you know, that the influence of, you know, going back to my heroes, it was like, my dad was this free thinking anti-establishment entrepreneur. And my mom was this Irish Catholic, you know, one of 12. Uh, and she grew up with nothing other than a, a burning desire for more for herself and, and, and her family. Did you always have a sense in you of kind of what you wanted to do with your life or like most of us, did you kind of stumble through and find your way? I did and I didn't. My mom was very demanding of her four kids. She made sure we got straight A's and, you know, there was corporal punishment <laughs> if, you, if you didn't, you know, and so I had that in me, you know, I had a competitive spirit in me. And I guess on one hand, I knew I wanted to compete at the highest levels and succeed. I didn't necessarily know in what it was, whatever was in front of me, I wanted to compete to win. So I got that from my mom. Were you an athlete early in life? I was, I, I played everything, you know, you put a yeah. ball in my hand and, and, you know, I'd compete. You, 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 you uh, blew the whistle. I played, I, I've always been super competitive. Yeah. I had a, uh, I had a friend in college. Uh, I'll, I'll probably never forget this after a game night, I didn't grow up in high school playing uh, board games with friends. And so when I got in college, very competitive, I went to a few board, uh, board games, sort of board night, uh, game nights. And my friend pulled me aside and she's like, uh, I don't think we're going to invite you back. Um, it's just not fun to play with you. And, uh, and I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, none of the rest of us actually came to play and win. we came to hang out with each other and the board game is an excuse to get together. And I'm not even exaggerating that, that that conversation was an epiphany for me. I was just like, wait a minute, that you like nobody wants to win, like nobody <laughs> is thinking about the outcome of this game. And, and I approached my, for the first 25 years of my life, I approached everything like a competition, everything, a, comp, a conversation, a board game. It didn't matter. Right. Uh, I can totally uh, identify there. And I have a similar upbringing. I'm an entrepreneurial family, most more failures than successes. And in you know, a very stern focus on sort of toe the line and, and get your schoolwork done. So that's, that's really, it's really interesting. I'd love to hear how many folks in, in, the, in the tribe identify with that because a sense of competition does feel like it's one of those early anchors for entrepreneurs in particular. No doubt. For me, competition early in my life was about winning, plain and simple. And, you know, I, I, I probably hated losing more than I, I loved winning. And it was just a burning desire. I came to appreciate competition much more for how it makes me a better human being. You know, it, it helps me be the best I can be, but for, you know, for decades, it was more about like, I need to be the best. And there is a lot to be said about the trials and tribulations, the, the heartaches and, and victories of, of competition and how it prepares you for the competitive nature of industry. Uh, it's incredibly, you're incredibly well served by it if you, if you allow it to serve you that way. We talked a bit in uh, our last conversation about the early formative moments in, we'll call it post-college career. A lot of folks jump out of college. They don't really know what they want to do. Maybe like you or I, they didn't have a plan. Some of us are lucky and we fall into the right opportunity uh, and others meander their way for a decade or more, uh, just trying to figure out who they are. And I've noticed, not only did I notice that you were in management consulting, but many of the folks I've met in the entrepreneurial life, I mean, we've now over 300 episodes here for Suncast, I've kind of connected the dots that management consulting can form. It can either be a really caustic environment, which people flee from, or it can be an extremely formative environment. Which was it for you? And how did that 
stint. Maybe you could talk a little bit about even how you got that role, but how did the stint in management consulting set you up for success? It's the most formative professional experience of my life. And, and there's an interesting backdrop that I think your listeners might appreciate. I, I went off to Boston College, you know, where I where I studied computer science with you know, dreams of playing basketball there. Unfortunately, my dad went bankrupt when I was a freshman, and, and I ended up having to pay for my own uh, education. And so, the, you know, as I mentioned, the, the prospect of ending up back where I came from, living with my dad was a was a huge motivator for me. And and so I flat out hustled. I I worked full time. I went to school full time, and and man, I I did it all. I I created and sold T-shirts at college dorms and football games. I, I tempted all over Boston from you know being an executive assistant to a teacher's aide, and eventually I lied my way into a full-time job at a top-tier management consultant where I was a desktop publisher, building PowerPoint slides. I love that job for lots of reasons, including the fact that they had a really high-quality color printing operation where I would stealthily print the Texas fake IDs I'd sell on campus. Um, <laughs> and, and so, you know, eventually I, I, in college, while I was working there, uh, I started a company called Media Magic, spotting a trend where school book publishers needed a CD-ROM software companion if they wanted to continue selling their textbooks in, in California. I, I think I made about a $150,000 in six months on that side hustle, which effectively paid foremost to college for me. I caught the attention of the partners at that firm, uh, which was Mercer Management Consulting, which Oliver Weinman today. And they offered me a job as a consultant when I graduated college, which was unusual because, you know, the firm really recruited at only Ivy League schools. And so I kind of came in the back door. You know, I, I faked it until I made it, as they say, and, and, and somehow ended up being the fastest promoted partner in, in, in firm history. And, you know, I lived and worked all over the world. From Hong Kong to Tokyo, Vienna to Amsterdam, I, I spent 12 months in the uh, U.S. Virgin Islands, and I worked across all kinds of industries. And that was incredibly formative. That, that actually began my, my path into cleantech and the energy industry, because when I was in St. Croix, I worked for Hess, the oil company. That was the client. And the world's second largest refinery is on St. Croix which is, you know, the Virgin Islands. And you'd never actually... Still is? I don't know. It's, but at the time? Yeah, yeah, at the time. It's a, it, wow. it was then a joint venture between the Venezuelans, which, you know, is a whole other issue and, and has. But during that time, on all of those travels, I noticed a lot of environmental catastrophe. You know, I, I, I lived in a hotel in southern China and it would border a river where on any given time, there was a five foot wide slick of dead fish on the shores. Uh, or the mountaintops I saw uh, lopped off in West Virginia for coal, or, you know, it opened my eyes to this fact that where I grew up was just stunningly beautiful. The White Mountains of of Northern New Hampshire are just, I I can't say enough about how beautiful they are and rugged. Um, You know, we grew up swimming in the river and drinking the water. You could, you can't do that in 90% of the places in the world. And so that was really formative. And my last client during my tenure at Mercer was, was Crayola, where I had led a case team recommending how to essentially digitalize the Crayola brands. And the CEO said, hey, we have nobody to build out this division that you've recommended you, um, that, that we build out. Will you join our leadership team and execute on the work you proposed we, we take on? And I was 27. I was featured in Fortune magazine for the work I did at Crayola. And it, it, this was the dot-com era. And I was making $250,000 a year 20 years ago. 
And so, you know, but when I look back, I was really just this scared kid trying to reach the escape velocity with a wicked case of imposter syndrome. But, but management consulting taught me so much about how to look at businesses uh, across industries, what was successful, what wasn't, what leadership teams were good, what were basically, you know, a collection of corporate survivors, that kind of thing. You just really see it all. But the problem with where I landed was that I seemingly had it all, but I had this real like existential ache about what my purpose in life was. I had, I had achieved that escape velocity, right? <laughs> Check. I no longer was afraid I'd, I'd end up back where I, I came from. I'd kind of legitimized myself. And it was then that a friend called that I had worked at with Mercer on the Hess case. And he had been tapped to be president of this he had been tapped by John Hess to be president of this company called Hess Microgen. And so he asked me to lead marketing and sales at that co-generation company out in Tahoe. Yeah. At Tahoe. Yeah. In Tahoe. Right. And I was like, well, yeah, your geez. life, your life goes from, uh, from bad, to bad to worse. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, he asked me to visit and talk it over during dinner and, and during which it was as if, you know, I was finishing his sentences about the thermodynamics of onsite co-generation. How did you know about this stuff that, at that point? This is the crazy shit. My dad, talk about when I was growing up, right? We had solar, we had river powered electricity, you know, the shit that never worked that my mom in part divorced him over. (laughs) And and, and it was, it was during that dinner where literally a light bulb went off over my head. And I thought, wow, uh, I can do well by doing good. I can make the world a better place and I can make a great living doing it. You know, this gives me a deeper sense of purpose and that was it. That's, you know, that was 20 years ago, almost 20 years ago. And <clears throat> that's when I got into the, um, the di- distributed generation. That's right. What a fascinating story. There's so much that I think I want to unpack along the way here. I didn't realize that both Hess and Crail were part of the Mercer engagement. It's one of the fun things about trying to trace someone's history back through their LinkedIn profile, because as an investor, you get listed as uh, an advisor to companies, but it's not always clear that you're an investor, right? Um, Or that you're at a company, like friends who are at Energy Impact Partners, right? They're listed as advisors for companies, but they're working at EIP, like that's their job. And, And so it's easy to, it's easy to let your ego say, well, gosh, how's this person getting so many opportunities, right? And it's really tied to making making good decisions early on about like the career path and that job leads to these customers. But it also tells, you know, tell, I want folks to hear, this is a classic example of like, you can't judge a book by its cover. There are non-obvious things about career path that tie, that connect the dots here. You mentioned working at Crayola making 250, which in today's dollars is about $375,000. It's amazing. At 27 years old, was there anything you know, this was just before you sort of migrated into the energy business full on. Was there anything about working at Crayola? Was it kind of all business? I think we look at companies like Lego and Crayola and think, oh, it's a, it's a toy company or it's a play company. Was there anything for you that you brought out of that experience at Crayola that has formed how you think about culture and company building that's different from the way the energy industry thinks? Yeah, definitely. Crayola is a really special place. It, it, it is an amazing brand, obviously. The big lesson for me at Crayola was that brand didn't invent itself. It's the result of a culture. And that culture really, truly underpins the characters of the brand. It's filled with really creative people that are aligned with the mission of helping kids and teachers and parents express 
their artistic desires and to engage in activities that are good for the brain. And so, you know, during my days there, the place was filled with people who were true experts in things like childhood development, artistic expression, and ergonomics of how kids hold things. It was really fascinating. And it it was a palette, no pun intended, it was a palette for me because I I do have a, a deep creative streak. And, you know, one of the really cool things we did is we created the first mass customized consumer product. We created uh, online at Crayola.com. We created the ability to go to Crayola.com and customize a, a box of 64 crayons, which to this day, I put in the hall of fame of, of things that I've I've done in my life. And it was a huge hit, you know, people loved it. You could go and instead of just getting the standard box of 64 crayons that everybody loves, of course, you could choose four colors or 16 or whatever you want. That's wanted. amazing. The whole box of gold, you know, because everybody just goes through the gold. <laughs> we created new crayon colors. We put www.crayola.com on 3 billion sticks, right? The, the, the crayons, the pens, the markers. It was really cool. It was a really amazing experience. I, I was really grateful for it. I think that far too often folks in their own career don't look back and think, how is this formative? How will I talk about this later? A lot of folks just kind of look back with regret instead of recognizing. I I had three business failures and I call all three of them MBA two, three, and four (laughs) because they all came right after my first paper MBA and they all cost way more than my MBA ever did. So I think it's fascinating. A lot of folks may not also connect the dots to, uh, you know, Hess and micro generation. I look at your background with Hess and think, oh, interesting. You worked for a petrochemical company and and, and an extractor that later sold off uh, their convenience stations to marathon oil and and got into just uh, exploration. Like my my mind goes like, oh, how did you escape from uh, the fossil fuel industry and come out of the dark side. But the truth is that you worked in a completely different sort of vertical, as it were, in that business at a time when most of us weren't even in the renewable energy business. Were there things that you thought were true about the power business back then that maybe now you believe are misguided? Or are there similarly things that you predicted back then that have come true today? So the way I'd answer it is, Working for an oil company was extremely valuable from the simple perspective, from many angles, but from the simple perspective that it's a reflection of consumer demand, right? One of the things I care most about is a really balanced approach to the energy transition, which in my mind means we don't leave behind the folks that are mining coal and we don't leave behind the folks that are extracting oil because to this day, it's still the majority of what we consume. And so I rail against folks that, you know, point their finger at those not doing their part in the clean energy transition while they continue to consume electricity that is still to this day mostly fossil fuel driven um, or the cars that are mostly fossil fuel driven. Uh, we, we, we have to have a solution for everybody. And working in the oil industry was, was an interesting reflection of that because John Hess, the, the CEO of, of Hess, bought Hess Microgen, which was really just a, a, a technology and two guys and a dog out in Tahoe and a concept around cogeneration so that eventually he could put cogeneration systems in the Northeast where the majority of their business was and put these things in Manhattan and consume natural gas to essentially become an electricity supplier and compete with Con Ed. And so there was a, there was a, a big business driver behind it. And it, necessarily 
be part of the clean energy transition. Although in putting cogeneration systems in place, it is one of the best things that you can do to affect the, the energy transition. I think it was just a reflection of capitalism and the fact that there was a better way, which I like and actually is part of what Voltus is all about. We use capitalism and currency to accelerate the clean energy transition, which we think is the best way to do it. A lot of what you've become known for is tied to the work you did at a company that was relatively little known and certainly even a segment that hadn't grown in popularity, uh, namely demand response. But I want to ask you a question for the folks that maybe have no idea what Internoc is. They have no idea how energy management works. Maybe they're selling residential solar and they haven't even thought about demand response at the CNI level because they've never sold to a facility or what, ha- what have you. You're at a Christmas party with your wife. Maybe I don't know what she does, but maybe she works for a company and there's like nobody really has a concept similarly to what you do. How do you ex- how do you talk about demand response as a category or energy management as a, as a concept? You know, well, our business is simple. We pay you to go home. <laughs> we, we pay you to stop consuming. We pay you to stop consuming electricity. And we pay you so much more than what you would make conducting your business that yeah. it's an easy decision for you to do it. How does that work? I'll play, I'll play the other person at the, at the party. <laughs> Walmart's a good example. Walmart has 5,000 stores in the U.S., all of which can be controlled centrally from their Bentonville, Arkansas headquarters, as you might imagine. And so all of the HVAC units, the lighting systems, all of the equipment in their stores, they can shut down, they can adjust, et cetera. On the other side of the equation, you have the grid operator that is turning on power plants as demand changes, off power plants as demand changes at the grid level. And it really doesn't care. The grid operator really doesn't care if you turn power plants on to meet increasing demand or if you turn down demand to balance the grid. And so in the late 90s, early 2000s, there was this thing known as the grand bargain of energy market restructuring that allowed demand to reduce power and get the same payment that a traditional supply power plant would get. So in Walmart's case, our technology is integrated with their technology. We send them a signal when we are asked to, quote unquote, disp our virtual power plant. And Walmart depending on the location, puts into action a curtailment plan. We measure that power reduction in real time and in aggregate across stores. That information is fed to the grid operator and we settle that performance finance. We then pay Walmart a portion of that revenue stream. And so going back to the dinner party example, we pay people to reduce their power. That's cool. And how long have you been involved? You mentioned that this is like late 90s, early 2000s. How long have you been involved in this great grand bargain restructuring of the energy market? Um, essentially, from the beginning, in my time as this was going all the way back to 2000, it was on the tail end of the California energy crisis, right? When Enron had manipulated the market, right when it had been restructured. And so these independent power producers like Enron Picking their chops over these power markets and their ability to uh, essentially manipulate prices, right, and extract profits. And so it was during that time that a lot of energy technology and clean tech companies, it was clean tech 1.0, right? And so in the earliest days, I, I was involved in that. This is late 90s, early 2000s. That's right. That's right. And you, you joined a company that we're, many of us are familiar with, Enernock. We all kind of look at it as the grandfather of demand response in the United States. Went public and has uh, even recently 
uh, I think 2018 maybe got bought by NL and uh, LX. Were you recruited to Interknock? Was that another one of like the management consulting relationships? And did your experience at Hess Microgen contribute to like why you were able to jump in at Interknock and, and sort of make a huge impact there? And 11 years later, you know, it's one of the most important companies in the energy management business. During my time at Hess, I was invited by the U.S. Department of Energy to present the concepts of cogeneration at various state capitals. It was at a presentation in Boston, I think, where I met the founder of, of Enernoc, Tim Healy. We struck up a friendship, and he, along with a new board member, Phil Judici, who was also at Mercer Management Consulting, convinced me to return to Boston from Tahoe and join Enernoc as a founding executive to lead marketing and sales. And, and so the, the concept of demand response was, the concept of demand response was new to me in 2003, 2004, but it, it struck so many chords with me as if it was like this culmination of life experiences. First, the energy bug had, had bitten me hard at, at Hess Microgen. It had sunk in that managing energy better was where I had purpose and could make a big difference, you know, again, doing well by doing good. Enernoc was a pure startup. It was not corporate venture funded like, like Hess Microgen. And there's some things that can kind of come along with that that are challenging. It was pure seed capital, right? Eat what you kill, innovate and sell or die. It was a super talented, driven, young team of competitors willing to go to battle to innovate in the most regulated industry in the world against deeply entrenched monopoly power, right? 3,300 US electric utilities. And so I, I, I was all in, you know, put me in coach. <laughs> But, you know, in the earliest days, demand response was what I would call a sheep in wolf's clothing to the vested interests of utilities and competitive energy suppliers. And, and this is a really wild story. You know, they looked at us in those early days as a niche that acted as a sort of uh, olive branch in the earliest days of competitive market formation, where the concept of a capacity market was being formed that essentially guaranteed annual payments to power plants for simply being on call, whether they ran or not. And so consumer advocates didn't like this so-called cash for clunkers program, but, but, that's when the, but that's when this grand bargain was struck that essentially allowed large power consumers to act as virtual power plants and be paid the same capacity payment if they were willing to curtail their load when called upon. And that began a revolution that eventually came back to haunt utilities and competitive energy suppliers that ended up in the epic David versus Goliath battle at the Supreme Court of the United States that was decided in 2016. And what was that battle? What was that called? That battle was, uh, it, it was over a, a FERC order called FERC 745, which was an order, essentially said demand response in energy markets should be paid the exact same amount per megawatt hour as what's being paid to a traditional power plant supplier. The Electric Power Suppliers Association, the lobbying group for generators, contested it. And they contested it on jurisdictional grounds. And what that means is they said, hey, this is not something that the feds should have jurisdiction over because this stuff is behind a meter. And that's under state jurisdiction. And so that was their argument. And they won in the court, DC Circuit Court of Appeals. And they won really to the shock and awe of everybody, and including, I, I contend, EPSA. I think they were surprised that they won. 
that was like the earth ending asteroid for the demand industry, because although FERC order 745 was kind of a narrow order around uh, energy, and there's three energy, there's three electricity market products, capacity, energy, and ancillary services. It was the jurisdictional argument that threatened not just response in this victory, but anything behind a meter, energy efficiency, energy storage, distributed generation, and demand response, because it set a precedent. So, you know, our stock price went from like 35 bucks down to three bucks over course of six months on the tail of that lower court decision. And the last thing I did at Enernoc was I led a team of people to petition the Supreme Court to hear our case to overturn the lower court's decision. And long story short is um, we won. I've been wondering, what's your least favorite solar asset management activity? You know, those daily, weekly, sometimes monthly deliverables that you just have to check off the list, but can be such a drag. Well, let me tell you how to press the easy button and get going on the work that really matters by automating your invoicing and ticketing and reporting with PowerHub. Focus on the work that you want to do. Take the boring stuff off your plate with PowerHub. You can go to powerhub.com forward slash suncast to learn more. Well, you're alluding to a departure from Internoc. Uh, I was going to ask, uh, I was looking at the timeline thinking 2016. Um, wow, that was this is after you had left. It's so 2015, uh, according to my math here, you decided to take a year off after a, a wonderful 11-year run, taking the company public, becoming by all measure the dominant force in the capacity or demand response market, not the capacity market necessarily. But um, mm. can you tell me about that decision in that year? Uh, what was it for you? What did you learn? How did you decide to leave, to, to sit back for a minute? Uh, I'd love to just hear your thought process. And I'll, I'll state for those who are longtime listeners, we just did an episode with Arch Rao of Span.io. And, and we talked a lot about how and why he created Span. Uh, my, my sense, just sort of looking at your timeline, is this led to a lot of the work that you're currently doing. But I'd like to hear about that time where you take a step back. You've, you already had sort of, uh, you've, you had broken, you had, you'd hit that escape velocity. My guess given the trajectory of Internoc is that you, you vastly exceeded your wildest expectations from an income and an imprint and a sort of imprint on the market perspective. Can you just take me back to 2015? Sure. Yeah. I had the fuck you money at that point. Uh, hopefully this isn't a, a family. It is, show. It's, a fa- uh, it's not a family show. <laughs> <laughs> we'll put explicit on this one, but that's good. <laughs> yeah. I have a number of factors that had me, that had me um, departing Internoc. You know, first was the simple fact that this um, earth-ending asteroid that I, that I mentioned, the FERC 745, really crushed our, our business. Um, not in the immediate term, because the way that energy markets uh, work is, you know, there could be a decision uh, on a particular regulation. It could take years to act. So although the lower court in the FERC 745 battle ruled against our industry and our stock price went from $35 to $3, that was really portending the future. And we knew that the likelihood was that demand response in wholesale markets was gone for good. Now, that is an earth-ending asteroid. And so the business really needed to pivot or figure out a way to take advantage of this massive network of customers that we had developed at Enernoc that had real-time information. And we had to figure out how do we deliver value to these customers and continue to build the business? Because we're staring at a cliff that we're going to go off in a couple of years. And we got to figure it out right now. And so the decision was made to go into what was called energy intelligence software. And 
to essentially ask customers to pay for software and find energy savings in, in, with that technology. Now, I knew dogs weren't going to eat that dog food because one of the big lessons in clean tech, energy management, whatever you want to call it, is that these large energy consumers, commercial industrial energy consumers, they manage energy, but they kind of moonlight in it. You know, they've got day jobs. Their core business, obviously, is manufacturing a widget, filling a hotel room, selling gallons of milk. And they don't really give a whole lot of thought to energy. And so the, the concept of selling software to these large consumers, knowing these customers, talking to these customers about it, I knew the dogs weren't going to eat the dog food. It's like trying to sell Microsoft Excel to somebody who doesn't know how to use a spreadsheet. It was like asking them to spend money and go on a treasure hunt with technology and tools that they didn't know how to use. They were relying on us as their energy expert in demand response and, and energy management. And so that was the first thing. I, I knew I wasn't the guy to lead us to the promised land of, of EIS. And, and that turned out to be you know, true, that EIS was, was quite a failure. Unfortunately, I mean, I wanted it to be wildly successful, but I knew that I wasn't the guy to, to, to lead us there. Two, you know, leading, you know, being responsible for revenue and margin being on the sharp end of the stick, so to speak, for 11 years is a grind. Somebody said, hey, do you know anybody who's ever actually done that for that long? And, and I don't. I, I, I've never met anybody who's led you know, marketing and sales for 11 years at a public company survive that long. It is, you're always on the road. You make incredible personal sacrifices. It comes with incredible physical and mental toll. And I needed a break. You know, my personal life had fallen apart. My kids were young and I didn't know them as well as I wanted to. And, you know, my, my reason to be is to be a great dad. And so I was failing at that. And so, you know, it needed to come to an end. And that was mid uh, 2015. I, I left an, under great fanfare and to much, much to the credit of, of Tim and David, the founders of, of Enernock, you know, they named the conference room after me, had a big party and it was, it was great. You know, it was great. And I, I had a non-compete that lasted for a year um, we had made our arguments on the FERC 745 case at the Supreme Court. So that die had been cast. Um, the last thing that I wanted to accomplish at, uh, at Enernock was, uh, you know, it was in the mail, so to speak. And so I took a year off. And it just so happened that halfway through that year, the Supreme Court actually ended up ruling on the FERC 745 case in, in our favor. And it was a resounding victory. That was in January of 2016. And I was, whatever it was, six, seven months into my year off in the non-compete. Enernoc had pivoted into energy intelligence software. The competitive playing field of demand response had been wiped out. You know, FERC 745 wiped the slate clean. Of the demand response companies that were left, they either went bankrupt, you know, they vaporized, they got bought by, you know, competitive suppliers. And in the case of Enernoc, you know, it had incurred a, a, enough debt that it actually ended up having to put a for sale sign on the lawn as well. And, you know, sold to an LX. But on the heels of that Supreme Court verdict, it was like, holy shit, we got to get the band back together because demand response was in the first pitches of the first inning of the game. You know, this is a massive market and it is highly underpenetrated. And so I said to myself, this is something I love. You know, I, I waged a battle at the Supreme Court, and I know this shit, and I love it, and I'm passionate about it, and I know the other people who are, and so we uh, we got the band back together. And that's what became Voltus. For those who 
maybe are, are unfamiliar with how uh, the industry has evolved. I heard, uh, you know, our, I mentioned DR talk about sort of uh, DR demand response, uh, Gen 1, and Voltus is perhaps uh, Generation 2. Can you explain to me how Voltus is different from Internoc? Like, obviously, it's not saddled with debt. It's got slightly different, uh, maybe, I presume, company relationships and contracts. But you go right back into the same bullring or bullpen because you understand the fight. How do you structure it differently as an entrepreneur now? Often people are unsatisfied when I say it's identical in many ways. <laughs> and that's a fact. Enternoc was wildly successful in demand response. One of the things I was most disappointed about when Enternoc sold to an LX is what it sold for, which was essentially $250 million. I thought it was worth at least a billion dollars. And the math was pretty simple. If you stripped out of that business, everything but demand response, it was worth a billion dollars. It was a you know, when you stripped away all of the adjacent businesses it was attempting to go into to pivot away from the risk of, of this long drawn out legal and regulatory battle, it was a gem. You know, 300 million in revenue. Uh, I think it could have kicked off $100 million a year in cash flow and been worth at least a billion dollars. And so, knowing that, knowing what a powerful business model that is, knowing how much bigger the market was especially on the tail of this Supreme Court verdict, I thought, let's take all of the great lessons we learned. Let's recognize all the mistakes we made and just do it bigger, better, faster. And that's essentially what we've done. We built our technology stack from the ground up to be cloud-based. So it's, you know, it's 1% of the cost of the technology structure that we had at Enernoc. We took all the lessons in the go-to-market machine that we built and we put it on steroids. We knew where customers wanted to go with their flexibility and what markets would value what we do best. And we knew which markets to avoid. We also knew which shiny pennies to not pay attention to and be distracted by. So in many ways, it is, it's the best of Enernoc, if you will. Uh, and so all of those lessons really paid dividends when we, when we started Voltus. For those who are completely unfamiliar, uh, I'm just going to do a little bit of uh, math and, and quick fact checking here on valuation. So Interknock over time, like you know, you guys saw it through uh, a tremendous meteoric, some would say, rise from you know the IPO to I think at its height somewhere around twenty two, twenty three dollars a share, fluctuating between you know, God, at one point like maybe forty or fifty million uh, uh, shares. At the lowest, uh, it was around somewhere between five and 13 million. So my, my, my gut check here on the 250 was about a 5X uh, exit on market cap, not on like on the, on the value of contracts. It's really interesting to hear from you that the valuation based on potential was about a billion, right? So it was bought at a 25% at a, a discount essentially to the value. And even at, um, you know, like I'm looking back, the, late, the earliest data, the latest data I can find is in mid-August, it would have been around a, a $44 million market cap. So at current multiples right now, 15 to 17, that's easily six, six to 700 plus million. And it's, it's clear, not only with Voltus, but many other companies sort of going into that space now, working in capacity markets, working in regional demand response, uh, as well as DERM's distributed energy resources, that there is unlocked value and potential. 
So I just wanted to state that for those who are just kind of thinking through and maybe aren't familiar with the historical context of Internoc, that where we all sort of look as a, as a reflex, we'd say, okay, well, I'm going to take what I know and apply it to some other niche or segment because this segment died. Um, what Greg is doing is it's not just remarkable from an entrepreneur perspective of like lean into what you know, but it's taking the insight and insider knowledge of more than a decade gleaned of how a market works and doubling down on it. And also with a, a healthy uh, uh, amount of fuck you money, so we'll, we'll note, to backstop. One of the things you said early really sticks with me. And I want to come back to sort of how you create this company around this opportunity. When we talked about Crayola, you talk about, a lot about what essentially comes back to building the right culture in the business. And as I look at the way Voltus speaks about itself, the way you speak about it, the way DR, uh, my friend uh, David, uh, talks about it as an employee. There's a lot uh, built around this, uh, this culture identity within the business. Is what you are building right now different fundamentally from a culture perspective from what you've previously done? But also, uh, so that's A, is it different uh, and how? And then B, how important as a founder and a founding team is setting the right culture to establishing that escape velocity for a company. Yeah, you know, team and culture are everything. I think it was Peter Drucker who said culture eats strategy for breakfast. I'll take a shitty business model with a great team over a great business model and a shitty team 10 out of 10 times. Enernock had an amazing culture. It was a big factor in why I joined Tim and David in the earliest days of Enernock. We were like-minded and we described our culture as bright, relentless, and good. Volta's culture is bright, gritty, and good. That twist, that slight change is super important to our culture. And for those folks who spent a considerable amount of time at Enernock, they, they will understand implicitly why we made that change. There was an element of the culture at Enernock that was a bit cutthroat, you know, and, 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 a lot of that, frankly, emanated from me, and it emanated from my immaturity as a leader in a rapidly, rapidly growing and evolving environment and inventing a lot of things for the very first time. And so one of the things that I'm really good at <laughs> is managing numbers and fundamentals and metrics and measuring things and systematizing things, and that comes from my management consulting days. There's a human element of it, though, that was lost in that culture. And when we built Voltus, that was a change that was extremely important to us. And it was in recognition of a number of things, the most important of which was, if you're going to be successful in the energy transition, in energy technology, clean tech, you have to have fortitude. You have to have longevity. The ups and downs are tremendous. The highs are high, the lows are low. It's a tremendously regulated industry. You know, you can have something amazing happen one day and the next day it's like, oh my God, we can't make payroll. And so we wanted to make sure that the culture was something that people felt really safe in. And they felt like they could do their best work while leadership was making sure that they always had the resources to fulfill the mission. And so that was a twist and an important change in the culture that we've, that we've developed. We could probably spend an entire episode just on culture alone. For those interested, I would really encourage you, if you want to really dig in to what 
uh, Voltus refers to as a Volton, which is someone, I guess, from the, the Voltus team. And who is a Volton? There's an a- image that I'm going to share on the show notes of our of this uh, episode page on our blog where you can see how Greg and his team have characterized this Venn diagram of bright, gritty, and good as who is a Volton. In fact, there are uh, a series of videos, the spotlight on a Volton video series. We'll link to that as well. I think that you guys have done some incredible uh, work around culture setting and giving others a sense of what it's like to be at the company. There are, I think, seven of those videos. For those who maybe don't want to go do the extra work, why don't we take a couple of minutes and just define for me through that lens of bright, gritty, and good, who is a Volton and what kind of culture you're trying to create? We need to hire uncommonly intelligent people. But we chose the word bright because hiring for intelligence alone doesn't necessarily mean anything. If you hire somebody with a really high IQ, but they don't apply that in a practical way, um, doesn't do you much good. So we think of bright as a good descriptor for somebody who is very intelligent, uncommonly so, and understands that they actually have to apply it every day for it to add any value. So that's bright. It's a shorthand for bright. For gritty, we recognize that all things being equal, if you simply outwork somebody, that often is going to be the biggest differentiator in life. And you see that a lot in in athletics, actually. You know, if I were to ask you who is the world champion, 100-meter sprinter, would you know that person's name? Uh, Usain Bolt. Right. Would you know who the fourth place finisher is in the world championship 100-meter dash? Not unless I'm an absolute geek on on sprinting. (laughs) Right. Right. Yet that person is literally four one-hundredths of a second slower. (laughs) And... The difference between Usain Bolt and the fourth place finisher uh, being four one hundredths of a second really is grit. It's hard work. It's perseverance. It's determination. It's recognizing that hard work is its own reward. You know, you know Michael Jordan would take a thousand shots a day in the off season, um, despite the fact that he has preternaturally incredible talent, as does Usain Bolt. But unless you apply that, apply hard work to that. It doesn't really do any good. So grit, gritty is super important to us. You know, good is a, a super important element of, of who we are because we are mission driven. We want to do well by doing good. And we need to find people who personally connect to that mission. Because as, as I mentioned earlier, this is a tough industry to be successful in. It's the most regulated industry in the world. And the Incumbents are so entrenched, you have to really love it. And so we, we look for good. And those are folks who are authentic, honest, they have a positive outlook on life. Uh, they're open-minded, they're inclusive, and they value diverse thinking in pursuit of the best ideas. So those three things are, are hard to find in combination, but that's the standard we set. Can you tell me a story maybe of someone on the team that not only exemplifies uh, the Volton spirit, but that inspires you personally. Every one of them. Um, it's funny. <laughs> this, was teed I, up, <laughs> this was teed up by Kelly. <laughs> yeah. All right. I'll, great. You know, you, you threw out Kelly. Yeah. So Kelly is our director of marketing and 
she really does embody bright, gritty, and good. She is uncommonly intelligent. Um, I think she graduated top of her class from Dartmouth. <clears throat> so no question, she's very high IQ, uh, but she applies it every single day. So she's very highly intelligent, but her motor is very hot. She applies it in ways that um, I, I say sometimes tongue in cheek is a bit exhausting because she drives me and I'm a really hardworking person and, and she'll stay on top of me to get something done until I do it. <laughs> and so um, I love her for that. She's incredibly hardworking. I think every morning she swims two miles uh, at like five in the morning. She has three young kids. I think that alone, those two things make you the grittiest person in the world. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, she's in, yeah, yeah. So she's incredibly hardworking and she drives hard all day. You know, we like, we like to say uh, block to block, right? She plays to the whistle and she's as good as they come. She has an incredible faith-based life outlook. Her and her husband and her kids give back constantly. I mean, they're always doing charitable work. She has an incredible perspective on life. She's unbelievably authentic, incredibly positive outlook. And boy, is she connected to our mission. She loves it. And she absolutely loves it. She'll tell you that she's constantly sleep deprived and yet wakes up every morning super excited for the day because she's going to be doing really important work. And I think I could, I could describe that kind of, those kind of characters in every single Volton. It is the most awe-inspiring part of my day. I wake up every morning and I'm just shocked that these folks want to work with me because they're so damn talented. I'm like, what are they doing? What are they doing buying into this mission that, <laughs> that I put together and following me? Well, you know, something, something that inspires me as an entrepreneur uh, who I love getting, I have a privilege of speaking with folks like you who are, you know, leagues further in advancement than I. I think one of the great goals of most entrepreneurs, certainly founders, is to get the plate spinning such that you can hand it off to someone else to hold on to it, right? While you go off and do something else. And a big part of getting adventure started is build the team, find the money and set the culture, right? Like those three legs of the chair, as it were. We talked about culture. We've talked a lot about team, but we haven't talked about money. And uh, you guys have had a really successful run with customers and team and a lot of that was just validated very recently. In October, you announced a 25 million Series B. Congratulations, first of all, led by NGP Energy. Can you tell me a bit about the underlying thesis of call it, what NGP and others investing in a Series B of Voltus means for not just Voltus, but for the energy market? I think the filter for how venture funds a company is fairly common, right? You have to have a massive market opportunity check. The, the distributed energy resource market, the demand response market is massive. Two, you have to have a world-class team. So venture looks for a team that can actually do lots of things, but create a product market fit to go after that market. And we've talked a lot about teams, so check. And the third thing is you have to have a good financial story. You have to show that the offer to your customer is compelling and you can make money doing it. And so it may be that you are growing fast and burning capital to grow, but that the fundamentals of the business, your revenue growth, your cost of customer acquisition, your cost to manage those customers, your profitability are fundamentally sound and our business ticks all of those marks. 
is Voltus the kind of company like Internoc that we should expect to see go public? Or is there, are there a lot of room left in Voltus as a private entity? It's a question I get at least once a week. Three public companies, three public demand response companies existed that don't anymore. Um, Internoc, Converge, and Opower. Opower was not just a demand response company, but it was acquired by Oracle. Converge was taken public by HIG Capital. And, and of course, Internoc was acquired by NLX. Being a public demand response company or a distributed energy resource company is very challenging because of the complexities of energy markets. And so the analyst community had a really hard time understanding those complexities and synthesizing it into models that they could communicate to their investors. They saw the volatility in these energy markets, the regulatory challenges as big risks. And so although you know, we went public in 2007 in, uh, at Enernoc, we had 60 million in revenue and a billion dollar market cap. And then the company was sold with about 400 million in revenue for $250 million. So you know, over time, the discount on that business model was a real challenge. We've talked a lot about some of the structural issues associated with it, but with that as history, I'm not sure enough has changed to warrant making this kind of company a public company. In addition to that, the private investment community is very, very eager for a cash generation machine like Voltus. I mean, we are incredibly profitable and we generate a ton of cash. It's got negative working capital. And so in essence, it just needs growth capital to be all that it can be. Yeah, I feel like uh, I'll probably, it'll probably be a conversation for someone else on your team to help explain to the layman DERs and everything from energy storage to demand response, how you guys sit at the nexus of it, maybe even what demand response 2.0 looks like, because uh, we are going to run around, run out of time here. But I'm impressed by a lot of what I've heard about how you've structured the company and, and it uh, stands to reason why you would... Um, be able to track the kind of capital and clients that you have. It was mentioned in your Series B announcement was the FERC Order 2222, which ensures the equal treatment of DERs in wholesale markets in the US. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Well, this is where the complexity of energy markets really comes home to roost. DERs, for those who are interested in the difference between DERs and DRs, is really an umbrella term. So DER stands for Distributed Energy Resources. It includes demand response. So we think of the four horsemen of DERs as demand response, distributed generation, energy storage, and energy efficiency. And there are different flavors of each, but those are essentially the elements that are defined by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission as being components of DERs. FERC 2 by 4 as we like to call it, essentially says that Federal jurisdictional wholesale markets, so the RTOs and ISOs that exist throughout the U.S., um, must provide what's known as a DER participation model that provides a pathway for those resources behind a meter to access the benefits of those wholesale markets and deliver the benefits that they can to those wholesale markets without states getting in the way. And so that is a massive change. And it unifies the treatment of distributed energy resources within these wholesale markets that uh, supports continued growth and innovation and uh, the kind of technologies that we develop. I love that you categorize it as the four horsemen of DERs. It gives me an idea for a follow-on episode that we'll no doubt be able to, uh, to attack on here. 
as we round home base uh, on what is the first of, I hope, uh, several interviews that we'll get a chance to have together, Greg, I wanted to dig in a bit to kind of the way you think about sharing your experience, uh, which is not insignificant, with your team. What is the thing that you try to teach your team how to do best? When you've got these stars like Kelly, they're gritty, good, and bright. What do you try to teach them to do and how do you pass on your knowledge? Well, I do my best to teach them anything they want to learn that they think I can help them with. But the one thing I always come back to is the concept of influence. Our industry is growing very rapidly. And there are a lot of challenges with that growth that require you to influence lots of different stakeholders. So when somebody asks me what I do, I essentially say I'm a salesperson because I sell the concept of Voltus to our customers, to new potential Voltans, to investors, to regulators, to politicians, et cetera. I have to influence them. And influence is a very powerful behavioral science. Every one of us has to influence. We're all in sales, right? Whether we're actually selling to a customer or selling an idea internally with our teams, or we're trying to influence our, spy, our, our spouse, right? <laughs> so, and understanding the essential motivators of, of human beings, and actually the, the psychology and the science behind that is an incredibly valuable tool. And so I'm constantly talking about the tools of influence. And we happen to subscribe to Dr. Robert Cialdini's work on this, in his book, Influence, right? The Six Weapons of Influence. And it's really deep, right? It's really deep stuff. It's really valuable stuff. And so I try to help the team with that uh, particular concept. I love it. I love that you brought it back as well to something that we talk about a lot here on Suncast, which is a lot of the playbook has been written for you. It's been written by people who've tried it thousands and thousands of times. It's, it's cataloged in these things uh, that used to be bound in paper called books. And they've been translated to the medium that you're probably consuming this information through, which is audio. Uh, I've listened to influence numerous times uh, Cialdini's seminal work on the psychology of persuasion, as the book uh, says. His other book, Persuasion, by the way, is also fantastic. Sitting right on my desk, sitting right on my desk. I love it. I love it. Do you have like a reading list that you give Voltans? We do. Yeah. So um, our onboarding process, how to be a Voltan, includes a, a reading list. You know, within the industry, we recommend a book called um, The Grid, rich in, uh, oh, yeah. written, written by Gretchen Bach. Gretchen, yeah. It's just a great um, kind of one-on-one on, on The Grid. Um, Oil 101, written by Morgan yeah. Downey, is a great book. It's called Oil 101? Yeah, it's called Oil 101. It's a little dense technically, but it does, it, it, it really does help people understand, you know, what it is we do with hydrocarbons. I love the prize, of course, Daniel Jurgen's book. That's on the, the reading list. ACDC, The First uh, Standards War, which is a fascinating read. It's about, obviously, Tesla and Edison and how we ended up with an alternating current uh, grid as opposed to a direct current grid. And oddly enough, we're perhaps moving more toward a direct current grid. Just amazing, amazing, uh, amazing book. Internal Combustion, uh, which is a book about how we ended up with an internal combustion engine as opposed to where we started, which was actually uh, Thomas Edison and Henry Ford developing a battery-driven car. Uh, we ended up with an internal combustion engine because that was what got us across battlefields in World War I and World War II. And they were easily maintained and the fuel supply was more uh, friendly to logistics. 
But we started with electric vehicles uh, and electric lorries to avoid the smog and the cold, you know, the, the steam engines and the horse shit in inner cities. You know, the lorries were actually, you know, designed to be uh, electric powered. So that's a great book, Internal Combustion. I could go on, but yeah, we'll get you. I, I, know, I know you. I know you could, man. That's awesome. Do you have anything that for you comes up as a consistent practice uh, habit? Something that you do regularly that gives you confidence, yields, uh, performance, etc. I, I wake up with gratitude. I wake up remembering where I woke up when I was ten years old. That's powerful. What do you want to be known for? Well, I want to be known. Have been a great dad, and there's so much that goes into that, right? raising really good human beings that help make the world a better place and help people. There's so much you, 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 you draw from that. Right. And, you know, being a great partner to my Fran and being, uh, you know, and then all those things, right. Being a provider and, you know, what's your purpose? What's, what is, um, what's your reason to be, what's your role? I try to keep, I try to keep that simple, you know, and, and, and Voltus is an extension of that. It's, it's, it's my way of doing well by doing good. And it allows me to be a great dad, um, provide them the opportunities that I never had and uh, spend the kind of quality time I want to with them and, and uh, eliminate the distractions in their life that I had as a kid that I don't want them to have. What's an example of that? Well, you know, it's funny when, when you grow up poor, <laughs> there are a lot of distractions, you know, I ended up going back to, Northern New Hampshire for high school. And I kind of lived like a feral child. My dad was a very permissive parent. You know, you got to do your own laundry and you got to fix the dishwasher and you got to, you got to work at the local supermarket to make money to put fuel in your car and all that stuff. That's a distraction from the things you really want your kids to focus on, which is school or sports and being a kid. If you ran into a longtime friend who was having a hard time running his business as an entrepreneur, but you really only had a minute or two to give him counsel without even asking his context. How might you try to pass on some of the wisdom that you've learned to that person? Are you brutally honest with yourself? What does that look like to be brutally honest with yourself as an entrepreneur? You really have to stare your failures and mistakes right in the face and own it like complete ownership, right? Extreme accountability. What's that Jocko extreme ownership? I think that's the thing that, that entrepreneurs uh, struggle with the most. Is, is really extreme ownership. When entrepreneurs fail, they, they fail to embrace the lessons of their mistakes and failures and own them and then turn that into lessons that get applied to underpin their success. Are you being brutally honest with yourself? Should you really be CEO? <laughs> you know, are you really able to be CEO? Or should you look for somebody to take your, the baby of your idea out of the cradle of, of innovation, Right. Where can people engage, learn more about you? You guys are hiring like crazy after this Series B now. How could somebody uh, throw their hat in the ring? Yeah, just voltus.co, not dot .com. V-O-L-T-U-S. V-O-L-T-U-S dot C-O. And it's pretty obvious how to join. Fantastic. We'll link to all those social ways that they can connect with you all. But let's end today with a bold prediction. Greg Dixon, what one thing do you see happening in the market that maybe nobody else is tracking? What's in your all-seeing crystal ball? I do see a single U.S.-wide, actually North American-wide electric grid where we don't have balkanized regional transmission organizations. Uh, I see every state joining a wholesale power market for the obvious socialized benefits of that, the reliability, the economics, the sustainability, and we need that if we're going to actually complete the energy transition. 
man, that is a vast, fantastic vision. One that I hope to be able to live to see, and I hope it happens faster than uh, any of us could expect. Greg Dixon is the CEO and co-founder of Voltus the second coming and the leader in many ways of energy management and uh, demand response for the United States. Uh, I'll throw lots of praise and accolades toward you that you probably, that you may not claim, uh, but this has been a really, really fun conversation. And I hope that the Suncast tribe will take a look at all the work that you're doing. And if you're listening to this and you are eager to jump in and you're just not sure where your skill set fits in clean tech, but you recognize in yourself the description of a Volta, and I would encourage you to go to voltus.co and apply. There are a ton of uh, positions they're trying to fill now in their growth curve uh, on this after this uh, latest round of uh, fundraising. Greg, congratulations and thanks. For, please come back and join us again for another chat. Thanks, Nico. Anytime. Man, it's conversations like the one I just had with Greg that make me so grateful that I have the job that I have and really humbled that I get to spend time with entrepreneurs like Greg. Thank you so much, Greg, for your time. Thank you, DR and Kelly over the Voltus team for helping make this conversation happen. It was intense. I learned a ton. And every time I get on the phone with Greg lately, I feel like I learn even more. In fact, Greg and I had a follow-up call and we recorded a really deep dive. And I mean, deep dive that is all about the, what he calls the four horsemen of DERs. And I'm going to share that with our private community of solar warriors and our guild. You can learn more about that at become a member over at mysuncast.com. I'll be publishing that out here pretty soon as a relatively uncut conversation. We will, of course, publish it in a few weeks. I don't know how many, maybe four, six weeks out in the publishing schedule, and you'll get a you'll get a chance to hear it. But if you'd like the inside track, of course, you can become a member of our Suncast Tribe and get that as one of the perks. Well, since you're already going to be online, I would love it if you'd share this episode with someone else. Would you do that on LinkedIn? That's where I tend to spend a lot of my social media time, and it's a real treat when Greg and I get to hear from you and learn how this episode is informing you. What do you think? Who else uh, do you think here needs to hear this story today? Share it and tag us with uh, Solar Warrior as the hashtag. That'd be amazing. Well, next week, we are going to go deep on energy storage. We're kicking off the week with one of our fan favorite episodes that we ran from SPI called The Great Solar Debate. And it is the first installment in a series that we hope to be bringing to you. It's focused on whether demand management software creates more value versus battery storage for CNI customers. And of course, next Thursday, we'll have another in our clean tech entrepreneurs. This time, Mr. Arnold Leitner, a concentrating photovoltaics entrepreneur turned residential home solar manufacturer. It's an exciting journey from a veteran in the solar energy business. Well, thanks again to our sponsors for helping make this content free to you. You can learn more about sponsors as well as how you could potentially partner with suncast in 2021 at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor remember you are what you listen to thanks again for showing up solar warrior it's half the battle